Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Mike talks about multi-use cards, Emma talks about Game Design Daily, and Matt talks about his time at Origins. Um, we're a bit low on listener questions, so if you have any questions you would like answered in a future episode, you can send them to theboardgameworkshop at gmail.com. And on to the show. Hey guys, this is the true Mike Brown. I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about multi-use cards today. So the longer that I play games, the more I'm drawn to card games because cards are just so versatile. You can use cards to do practically anything. And one of the coolest things that you can do with cards, I think, is multi or set up situations where cards can be used multiple ways. So Cards don't just have one or multiple uses usually. There's a spectrum. You know, people could have a single use card, dual use cards, you know, triple use cards. And so different games do multi use cards in different ways. Now, some example of single use cards is uh, Splendor. Splendor, you just play a card down to the table. It's the only thing you can do with it. You buy a card, it's going to go on the table. It'll give you points, it'll give you money, but that's all. Um, another game similar is Clank. In Clank, you just get a card, you play it, it takes its effect. Now, Temporum has dual-use cards, and in Temporum, you have the ability on the card, which will give you money or effects, or both usually. Um, it also has a scoring bar, which if you want to, instead of playing the card normally, you can score the card and then gain points for it. So a game that I designed, The Perfect Moment, is another example of dual-use cards. You can equip a card to perform its ability and to give an ability to your opponent, and then you can also score cards by matching symbols on it. Now, Eminent Domain is a good example of triple-use cards. Um, most of the cards in that game can be used as a role, an action, or revealed for their icons. And it makes games more strategic to have more uses on your cards, so you have to consider all the possibilities afforded by all of your cards. One of the classic examples of a triple-use card game is Race for the Galaxy. You can play your cards normally, you can discard them to pay for other cards, or you can use the cards as trade goods. And you don't know which card you're using as a trade good, but still it's another use for the card. Now, some games go so far as to having many, many uses for cards. Uh, I think on Ludology, uh, they mentioned a game that had seven uses, but Innovation or Motainai are some pretty, you know, large number of uses for cards. In Innovation, you can score cards, dominate cards, play the cards for their effects, tuck it for some of their effects. You can also reveal cards to see what color they are. Um, so that's like five uses. In Motainai, you could create tasks, assistance, sales, crafts, which has two modes, or you could add them to your workbench, or reveal cards for their color. So that's like six uh, uh, uses for cards. So there are multiple benefits of having multi-use cards in a game. My favorite benefit is that they allow the players to make more choices without increasing the number of things that the player has to interact with. So if a card has three uses, then you get the same amount of benefit out of the card as you would of having three cards in a game without multi-use cards. 
having a hand of six triple-use cards is more exciting mentally than having a hand of 18 single-use cards is um, because it's um, it gives you options but it also forces you to decide between which ability you want um, like if I had one card that had three abilities on it but I wanted to use two of the abilities I would have to decide well am I going to do this or am I going to do that so it's more interesting to have multi-use cards even if you end up having the same number of abilities that you're choosing from now another benefit of having multi-use cards is um, you don't have to hold on to as many cards um, imagine a hand of 18 single-use cards or a hand of six triple-use cards. So much easier to hold the six cards. So your decks are smaller, um, but it still gives the players a lot of options. And um, having multi-use cards helps to mitigate randomness because if you had three different abilities on your card, you know, hopefully one of them would be useful to you. If you had um, just one ability on your card, it might be useful to you, but it might not. And so that's the random factor is decreased by having multi-use cards. It basically puts control back into the hands of the player. And that's where the control really belongs. Now there's also some penalties associated with multi-use cards. They do increase the complexity of the game. AP is a bigger problem in game with multi-use cards. Um, also, they have a steeper learning cur curve. Like looking at the card, it's physically more busy usually if there are more things you can do with it. So, like, even though I love complex games, the first time I tried to play Motai Night, it was pretty difficult to figure out what I wanted to do, just because the multi-use cards was like, well, do I put it over here, do I put it over here, how, you know, which one of these will actually help me get my goal? So, that being said, it's still really good, in my opinion, to use multi-use cards. I think they're a great way to get more out of your game. So when you're designing games, multi-use cards is something you should really consider. Uh, now feel free to discuss this or any other board game design related topic with me. I am the true Mike Brown um, and on Twitter that is spelled T-H-E-T-R-U-M-I-K-E-B-R-O-W-N. Um, I ran into the character limit on my name on Twitter. But everywhere else I'm the true Mike Brown with an E at the end of true, you know, T-R-U-E. Um, so you can also look me up on Board Game Geek, or you can find me on Facebook or Google Plus under those names. And I guess that's about it. Thank you. Hi, all. My name is Emma Larkins. I'm a tabletop game designer, creator of Heartcatchers, Confabula Rasa, Abandon All Artichokes, and a bunch of other prototypes that I have in progress. I'd like to talk today about this practice that I do uh, mostly on Twitter and Instagram called Game Design Daily. So you might have seen the Game Design Daily hashtag floating around on Twitter. A little bit about what it is and what it means to me. For me, game design daily is taking a little bit of time out of my day, every day, to work on something that will further my uh, abilities and strengths as a game designer. I use the definition pretty loosely. 
when I'm working on my game design practice. So for example, it could be something and it has been something um, such as making a prototype or making some progress on a prototype that I've already started. It could be something like reading some segments out of a game design book or reading articles about game design. However, for me, it doesn't necessarily have to be that specific. I, I like to make it as broad as possible to make it as easy as possible to work on every day. So for example, last week I went to a nature sanctuary and walked around for about an hour. Uh, I saw some amazing things. There was bald eagles, there were snakes, there was frogs, I took some pictures. I wasn't necessarily thinking about game design as I was having these new experiences. It was more that uh, I've, I've learned from, from doing this coming up on a year now that any new experiences I have will feed my uh, creativity as a game designer. So having opening myself up to these new experiences is super positive and super useful as a designer. So that can be part of my practice or things as simple as doing some doodles or playing games as well uh, is a big part of my practice and the more I play both published and unpublished games the more I learn about game design. So that's a little bit about the background of game design daily and if you've seen posts on Twitter and been like oh that's a picture of a plant or that's a picture of a turtle how does that relate to game design to me it's all interconnected and all related uh, a little bit about how the practice started when I moved to Seattle about a year and a half ago I was in a transition period career-wise and I wasn't sure what I was going to do for a career and I also wasn't sure what I was going to do with respect to game design so I, I took some time to delve into my psyche, as corny as that might sound, uh, and a lot of what I was doing to explore my thoughts on my future was some of the traditional game design, or sorry, the traditional daily practice activities, things like writing in journals or meditating, stretching, eating better, all of the things they suggest as activities you can do to uh, improve your life in general. So I started to get into these daily practices and it worked. I think a lot of times we kind of should on ourselves, like, oh, I should do meditation, I should do more exercise, and we don't do them and instead build up a lot of guilt around them and not really being able to engage with those things and then on top of that piling the guilt on makes them <laughs> seem like like negative things or like they don't work but for me in particular managing to find some time to work small things in into my day was really powerful and one of the reasons that it worked for me is that I allowed myself to set the bar super, super low. So for something like exercising, if I could do like two sit-ups, if I could walk up one set of stairs, like I allowed myself to commit 30 seconds 
a minute, two minutes to my practice in a day and have that be enough. I also didn't punish myself for missing a day. And those two things were very integral to making daily practices as a concept work for, work for me. So once I kind of like super low level, super easy access started to get into these daily practices and I was seeing the benefits for it, uh, about July of last year, the idea came to me, what if I was to do the same thing with game design? So I was a little stuck on the designs that I was working on. I had managed to start to ease myself back into game design at that point, but I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be a better game designer, faster game designer, work on more de- more designs. And I wanted to use the idea of a daily practice from a game design perspective to kickstart my habits, to lower the pressure of Um, becoming a game designer and so I did the same thing with lowering the bar with being really kind to myself with not worrying too much about whether I might miss a day or whether I was going to be able to keep up with it I just kind of started with it and said you know like hey I'm going to do some doodles today or hey, I'm going to read a page of a game design book. I have this book, The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell, that I'm still slowly but surely working through. And a big part of being able to get so far through the book was saying like, hey, I can read a page. Like if I read a page today, that's good enough. So I had this practice, this fledgling practice, practice that I was starting to do, starting to get into. Another big part of it was cataloging my practice and making sure that every day I posted on Instagram and Twitter, not necessarily to prove to people that I was doing it, but more so to put a stake in what I had done for the day. I think a lot of times when we're struggling with our practice as game designers or struggling with our designs, we spend a lot of time in our own heads kind of thinking through problems, mulling over things endlessly, and we don't take any of that into the physical world. So for me at least, having a record of what I was doing, either taking a picture of my doodles or writing down a list or making a prototype, doing a play test, I found that recording and sharing whatever I was doing meant that I really felt like I had done something for the day, accomplished something, again, even if I was doing it for 30 seconds or for a minute or for like a super, super short chunk of time. And so, yeah, about a year ago, I started doing this game design daily practice. And one of the most exciting things for me was that it worked. It helped me with my game design. That was my thesis, that doing a little bit every day would help me be more successful as a game designer. Um, 
So I was really happy to track my progress and start to see the ways in which doing a little bit every day was helping me, uh, for example, move forward on designs that I had felt that I was stuck with start to feel more comfortable reaching out to people to set up play tests, start to go to conventions, and all of these great things started coming out of this daily practice. For example, about six months into doing the practice, I ended up figuring out like, hey, I'm gonna go to PAX Unplugged, and I write the, about a month before going to PAX Unplugged, I had, done a prototype a day week in which I was making a new prototype every day of the week. It's just like super quick and dirty, getting stuff, getting these ideas out of my head and onto paper. And it turned out not all of them were terrible. I was really surprised to enjoy some of my de- designs and take them to my playtesting groups. Other people were enjoying the designs as well. I felt confident to reach out to some publishers knowing that I was going to PAX Unplugged in a really casual way. Again, like lowering the bar so much had taken off a ton of pressure from everything that I was doing. I said, hey, I'm going to PAX Unplugged. You know, I could kind of reach out to publishers just as a, as a, in a, a practice, just like, you know, low pressure. Maybe I'll have a meeting. I'll get a little more experience with that. And it worked really well. And a couple of publishers that I talked to had a lot of interest in the games that I brought. So that's just one example of the really awesome stuff that came out of doing this practice. So it's been really enjoyable for me. It's really helped me to improve as a game designer. And what I'm hoping to inspire for other people with this practice, I've talked to some people about it and even as I try to encourage people um, towards the simplicity of it and lowering the bar, how I want it to be something easy and accessible, I think people kind of get caught up on the daily aspect of it. And again, most of us have tried to start habits and quote unquote failed or felt like failures. And I think people get really um, hung up on that aspect of it. It's like, oh, you know, I've tried to do things every day. It's really hard. I don't want to feel that sense of failure in myself again. And that's definitely not what I want people to think or to feel when they're wanting to get into this habit. I think it's really important both to emphasize the low bar of it. Um, If you can set yourself this goal of just doing something for a minute, just doing something for 30 seconds, just doing a sketch or a doodle or writing in your journal or reading a page, like all of those are fantastic daily practices that you can do that really, really add up over time. And I've seen it myself. And I think the other thing to note is Daily is a term that I use in place of regularly (laughs) because it's mostly because it's a little catchier, but for you, daily or regularly might mean every other day. It might mean two days a week. It might mean you have a week on. It might mean you have um, 
you do one week a month where you do every day in that week. It might mean that you do just weekdays, just weekends. Like it doesn't have to be like literally the literal sense of every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. It's really important to find a way that practice works for you as an individual. And that's really what I've hoped to inspire with this practice, um, that people will find a way to regularly do design practice in a way that works for them. Um, I want game design to be happy and easy and fun for people. And I'm really excited to have more designers come into the fold because of that. So yeah, that's a little bit about game design daily and about what the practice means to me. I hope that this has been useful and informative to you. If you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. I'm on Twitter and Instagram under at Emma Larkins. You can also find me on my website, which is emmalarkins.com. Always happy to answer more questions and always happy and excited to see the ways that people are making Game Design Daily work for them. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed. Hello everyone, this is Matt Shoemaker from Hidden with a Shoe and I'm coming at you this month with a special segment on the Origins Game Fair. Now, I go to a lot of conventions. Uh, this is my third Origins, uh, but each year I tend to hit Dexcon, GaryCon, Origins. Uh, usually I'll hit uh, Dreamation, but this year I'm hitting uh, Dice Tower Con instead, and then Gen Con, and now the new PAX Unplugged, since it's in Philadelphia, and I live in Philly, and it's kind of hard to pass that one up. Origins is one of my favorites, though. It is, uh, well, probably the third largest convention in the nation now, uh, since PAX Unplugged seems like it was larger. Uh, the attendance was about 18,000 unique, if I remember correctly, this year at Columbus. Um, but overall, it's uh, one of my favorite conventions to go to, and it's been very good for uh, design and networking and outreach for your game. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about design so much today, uh, more just about how you can leverage a trip to something like Origins for your game project. So just to give you a little background, uh, my current game project, Be Lives, We Will Only Know Summer, is getting ready to launch on crowdfunding on uh, Kickstarter, most likely this September. So we're about three months out, and Origins is the first major convention that I'm attending to make a big marketing and outreach push with it. So with that in mind, I'm going to kind of go over what I did at this convention and what you may want to do if your game is in a similar state come around next year when Origins is out. Uh, these kinds of uh, activities that I participated in are also valuable at other conventions, particularly larger ones like Gen Con, um, possibly at Unpub 8, or well, Unpub 9 next year, uh, and just other conventions where you're going to find a lot of designers and other people that are in the um, small market uh, game field for board games. So first off, on Columbus itself, um, when you go to a convention like Origins, you don't really see too, too much of the city. The hotel I stayed at this year was about three quarters of a mile south of the convention center, right by the Capitol. Um, I was barely there, pretty much slept and dressed and showered, and that was about it at the hotel, and that's pretty typical for me. The main thing you do out in the city is eat. Now, 
Origins is a little different from some conventions in that once you go more than a block outside of the convention center, people don't usually tread out that far. You just go one or two blocks away from the main site and you find pretty much no lines, nobody waiting for anything, all that stuff. So if you want to check out a place like, say, Elevator Brewing Company, they have great food, they're not far away, and uh, you can get in there with no problem. That said, though, there are definitely some favorites within a block of the convention center. Uh, my personal favorite is Barley's. Um, Barley's is a brewery. Uh, well, I don't know if it's really a brewery, but it's uh, they, they do make their own beer and sell it in-house. They also have Barcade upstairs, which is a little bar uh, with a bunch of free video games in it that you can play in. And the food is good, and it also is nice because it serves as a meeting place for just about everybody at Origins. It seems like everyone that attends Origins eats at Barley's at least once, so it is busy, um, but I think it's worth the trek at least one time. Another favorite of mine, and pretty much everyone else at the show, is the North Market. So for us in Philadelphia, uh, we have what's called the Reading Terminal Market, which is basically the same thing as North Market, but about four times bigger. Uh, what this is, is a small conglomeration of different food vendors. Um, there's delis, butchers, bakeries, cheesemongers, all kinds of things inside. And you can go in and get some really great food for not bad prices. The only downside to North Market is the hours. It's only open from, I believe, 9 to 6 every day. So you pretty much need to eat during convention hours or you're going to have to find somewhere else to go. All right. The convention center itself is a long stretch of buildings that run north-south. Um, I was entering from the south side every time, which uh, contains both a food court, um, the big bar on two, which I will get back to in a little bit, but it's a favorite for a lot of people, um, as well as the entire Dungeons & Dragons area. Now, if you're into Dungeons & Dragons like I am, uh, you should definitely check this out. I do believe Origins has the best setup for Dungeons & Dragons of all the major conventions. It's not too crowded. You can hear everybody well. It's very spacious, and it's just well run. Uh, heading north, uh, you get up towards more of the uh, general areas of the convention. You find where all the lines are. Um, where the uh, unpub room is, the media room, which I'll talk about a little more, and uh, the general convention areas, including the exhibit hall. Um, despite that, uh, Origins is pretty much a general convention, uh, just as far as its layout goes. The main things to note about it is that the exhibit hall, at least this year, was kind of in between halls A and C, because it was hall B. Um, and they just kind of had guards posted at night all the time. Uh, but there were still activities at reserved tables on halls A and C that you could participate in. Um, or maybe, if you were lucky, do some open gaming there. Um, open gaming had a little bit of drama this year that I'll cover uh, later in this segment. Uh, the main thing I was here for, of course, was game design and promotion. Uh, with my game um, B-Lives coming out in a few months on Kickstarter, I wanted to make sure to really start getting the word out. So about a month before the show, I started scheduling interviews and just letting people know I was going to be there. I have four interviews scheduled that I did, uh, one of which is up on YouTube right now. The other three will be coming soon, whether they're in a podcast or otherwise. Um, I also made sure to schedule with BGG to do a video summary. So if you don't know, uh, if you've got a Board Game Geek page for your game and it's coming out soon, you can sign up at Origins to do a little maximum 15-minute introduction to your game that will get posted and automatically added to your page uh, for your game. 
I found this to be invaluable. Um, they're still doing the editing. It hasn't been added yet, but just the, the large number of people that see BGG find your game through there um, and like your game is, is amazing. Uh, in fact, having a BGG page set up beforehand uh, is pretty much a must. Um, I got on the uh, preview page for Origins. I'm also on the preview page for Gen Con. There's many people that found and asked questions on there, and several playtesters that came up mentioned seeing my game on there. So I highly recommend uh, you get on there as soon as possible. Something else I scheduled and did at Origins were several business meetings. I met with manufacturers as well as a few marketing partners that I'm hoping to work with to promote the game leading up to Kickstarter. Now, I know I've seen a lot of advice online about not going with anybody who solicits you for marketing for your Kickstarter, um, especially when it's a cold call, and I completely agree with that. This is a little different situation for me. Um, these are people that I are well-respected in the industry that I know and wanted to meet and just talk about and see what we could do with each other, um, and for each other, for that matter. I truly believe these things are partnerships that extend beyond money, and it is worthwhile knowing that both of you believe in your game, um, believe in it as a product, and are willing to work together to do the best you can to bring your game to as many people as possible. The next thing that was important for Origins that I did was playtesting. I had two slots in the unpub room on Friday and Saturday, late afternoon, early evenings. Um, they went pretty much nonstop, and as I mentioned, I had several people come by that had either heard about my game through Board Game Geek um, or some of the other posts that I had been making online and just following it. Um, so it was great to get this in, and even though we're in the late stages of my game development, I still needed a lot of feedback facing the graphic design, particularly towards the usability and accessibility of the graphic design on any of the player aids, the player boards, the tiles themselves, uh, things like that. So even at this late stage, I found this playtesting to be an extremely valuable experience. Final game design thing that I did uh, was networking. So uh, other than just talking with people in general, I made sure to attend two specific meetups to do networking. The first was the Punchboard Media Meetup. This was held in the Unpub room. Uh, and this is just full of basically everybody you could imagine, game designers, um, board game media, uh, other bloggers and podcasters and vloggers and everybody you could think of pretty much was attending here. So it was great to just introduce yourself to people, play some games with people, and just have a fun time. The second one was the heavy cardboard meetup, which was held at um, Barley's uh, during Origins After Dark. Uh, this one was similar to the Punchboard Media meetup, although being on Saturday night and at a bar, there was definitely a lot more um, people drinking and talking going on and less game playing. So there were completely different atmospheres in some ways, although they had similar types of people showing up. Um, but that is something to keep in mind. The venue and what is happening does matter for the types of activities that you are going to participate with each other. Now, all that game design and promotion that I talked about was the, the main thing that I was at Origins for. Pretty much from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. every day, I was doing those activities with some breaks in between. Now, I'm going to have a booth at Gen Con this year, so when I wasn't doing interviews or networking with people, I was wandering the dealer hall to examine what other people had done and worked for them. So there was very little downtime for me. But downtime is something that you really need to make sure you get into a convention. If you don't get downtime and do some self-care, you're going to get sick. You're going to get con crud. You're also going to have less fun of a time 
you're going to be a lot more exhausted and just less effective at all of those meetings, playtests, networking events that you're there to do for your game. Um, so things I like to do for self-care is just make sure to eat. Um, I know it sounds kind of silly, but I try to get a minimum of two good meals a day, usually breakfast and dinner. And these are meals that are not business occasions. I did have two business meetings that were over either lunch or dinner, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't really get to relax when you're having that kind of a business setting. So it's good to, whether it's just sitting down and having a meal with your friends that were there, um, just uh, get, having a drink at a bar, something like that. Uh, just low-key, either by yourself or with a couple of people, let your mind kind of unwind and just let yourself relax. Whenever I did that, I felt so much better and was charged up to do whatever was coming up afterwards. Something else I like to do to unwind, and this is just personally for me, is miniature painting. So I was very excited to find out that Vallejo Paints and WizKids were sponsoring a Beholder painting nine times during the con. And um, what that is, is uh, if you don't know Dungeons and Dragons, one of their iconic monsters is the Beholder. And there's a very nice miniature WizKids put out for it recently. So for $10, you got to sit down with uh, Vallejo Paints and you got a Beholder miniature and you got to just paint it while they kind of taught you through a color scheme and things like that. This was totally worth it for me. Um, I got to sit down, just relax, kind of zone out from the entire con and just focus on this miniature. And then the best thing about it, too, was that even though uh, we had two hours to paint it, we didn't really finish. So we kept coming back throughout the convention when we needed a break to just sit down and paint for 20 minutes or so. It doesn't sound like much, but doing that activity really helped and helped to refocus and recenter myself and uh, make me much more productive for all of the game design and game networking uh, activities that I had. All right, now Origins overall is a great convention, but that said, it does have some problems. Uh, my first concern with Origins in general is that they t the, the convention staff and organizers tend to be uncommunicative. Uh, what I mean by this is that uh, first off, there's it's there's there's not lines like there is at a PAX convention. It's not a line con, but there were a lot of event ticket problems this year. And they, it, because of that, there were a lot of line issues this year. They didn't have enough people on staff to really help get people through the events. Um, they don't see, have a computer system that you can check online for events. Um, so you pretty much have to go up with the book and ask them what you want, and then they have to check for you if it's on there. This made the lines move extremely slowly. Um, for one of those Beholder paintings that I was talking about earlier, I stood in line for 45 minutes before I found out they were just going to take generic tickets for it and just left the line and went up to it. Um, there were many people that were very upset with this. It was very difficult to get through. And on top of it, Origins even opened up some other lines um, that they were using for badge registration to take event submission, but they didn't tell anybody this. So the event line was growing huge. People were leaving and entering the line. They were not happy about it. And then other people in other lines were getting through. Although, don't take me wrong, those lines were still moving very slowly. And it was just a kind of harrowing experience that was not pleasant to go through. Something else along with the, uh, the uncommunicative parts about Origins is the booth spaces. So I talked to several of the vendors in uh, Origins version of the Entrepreneur's Avenue, uh, which is basically for newer, smaller publishers to use. And Origins ended up shorting several of them, not all of them, but several of them on booth space. So there was one aisle in particularly where they uh, 
were apparently paid for 10 foot by 10 foot booths. And when they showed up, they were given eight foot by 10 foot booths or smaller. I found this out because I was, of course, asking several of the people in the booths um, just about how their their origins were going. And they brought this up as a complaint that they basically didn't have any say in the matter and they had to take it or leave it. Um, so that was disconcerting to, to hear, and it was frustrating for those um, businesses, and I really hope Origins can do better on that in the future. The next thing that goes on with their uncommunicativeness is about open gaming. So if you look in the program, it does list one room for open gaming, but then the maps in the program don't actually show you where it is. It took me two days to find the designated open gaming space, and when I did, it was only a room about the size of a small classroom on the far north end of the convention center. This is a little disheartening to see uh, just because that, that it meant it was very difficult to find open gaming space, and many people, myself, I'm not the only one that had this problem, just didn't even know where it was. Um, people thought that there was open gaming in halls A and C around the open tables in the evening, but unfortunately, it, it not only seemed like those spaces were reserved, but that if you use them long enough, sometimes people would get kicked off of those spaces, sometimes they wouldn't. So it was just very all overall confusing and not a positive experience. Um, Origins does have something called the Boardroom, which is their board game library, and you need a $20 ticket for, which sold out for on the first day, where a lot of just general free play gaming seemed to take place. So if you didn't have one of those tickets, you were kind of left wondering where you could play games with your friends, and it didn't seem like there were a whole lot of good options there. Now, people who have more experience at Origins than me have said that they were able to find spaces, use spaces, and things like that. Um, but it's still for someone who's a little newer, like me, who this is my third Origins again, um, this is more difficult. They might say, what's the big deal about open gaming? Well, um, remember how I was mentioning before about the punch board meetup versus the heavy cardboard meetup? Well, one of the only places to meet uh, where you could play games with people and discuss things just openly is the high bar on two, which is in the Hyatt, as well as places like Barley's. Now, some people don't like to meet over drinks just because then you can have things turn more into uh, kind of an alcohol-fueled gaming experience rather than just sitting down and gaming and socializing. These places also don't have a whole lot of space to actually play games. So by not having this open gaming space, you're really limiting who you can talk to, what games you can play, and uh, just, just basically boils down to less people that you can show your game to. Um, so that was frustrating as well. Uh, something that might have helped with this was signage. I already mentioned the maps were not very good. Well, Origins also had very little signage at all. Um, had they done so, I might not have taken two days to find the open gaming area. Might have been more clear about where you could play open games and just find other areas in general. I mean, for the most part, the only the only room that I really found was really easy to find was the Dungeons and Dragons room in the, above the Hyatt. And the whole reason for that is because uh, the Dungeons and Dragons team puts out specific signage that they're there. That is not provided by Origins, that is something they do. So there's something that needs to be done about that, in my opinion, just to make these things easier. The last negative thing I want to talk about Origins was some sexual harassment that occurred there this year. I'm not going to get into specifics about this. I'm sure many of you have heard about this by now. Um, this is just something to remind yourselves that um, you need to be inclusive and pay attention with all gamers. Anyone who's um, playing with your games, be respectable of them. Um, they are people too. There is no reason to be um, rude or um, basically inappropriate with anybody. 
And if you see anyone doing those activities, it would really be beneficial if you could call them out. Um, this is really a detriment to our hobby. Uh, I believe it is a big reason why Gen Con has invited Anita Sarkeesian to be their lead speaker this year. Um, these, whether you believe it or not, this is a real issue in our hobby, and it's just a detriment to um, our games in general. I mean, at the very least, it should help you to not do this for selfish motivations. I mean, women are 50% of the population. Um, if you are writing them off or mistreating them right away, you are just losing 50% of the people that could possibly be playing and enjoying your game and collaborating with you and making better games in the future. So please, please keep that in mind and um, be a friend and an ally to those in need when these issues come up. So that pretty much brings us to the conclusion of my Origins experience. Overall, it was a wonderful convention, and I do plan to go back next year, um, possibly as a vendor, if this Kickstarter goes extremely well in the fall, but this is the unknown times I'm in. Um, I hope Origins makes a few of those changes I mentioned, um, particularly towards signage um, and just kind of clarity in their messages. Um, I'm looking forward to Dice Tower Con, which is the next convention I'm at, and then Gen Con following that. Um, I don't think I have anything else to say about the convention, really. I mean, it was just a wonderful experience. I'm still coming down off of it a little bit. It was just a week ago. Um, but if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them on Twitter or in the comments of this video. You can find me at BeLivesGame on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also visit my website, uh, hitemwithashoe.com. That's E-M, not T-H-E-M. Um, and if you get a chance or you got questions about how to market your game or just wondering what's going on with BeLive's We Will Know Summer, always only know summer, I am very happy to talk about that. Thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop, like the show on Facebook, and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.